0: I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Welcome to part two of our conversation. This I love so much on page 112. You describe a moment that cracks me up, I tell you. (laughs) You say, I woke one night to find him, Barack, staring at the ceiling, his profile lit by the glow of streetlights outside. He looked vaguely troubled as if he were pondering something deeply personal. Was it our relationship, the loss of his father? Hey, what are you thinking about, I whispered. He turned to look at me, his smile a little sheepish. Oh, he said, I was just thinking about income inequality.
1: That's my honey. <laughs> that was Barack, you know? I mean, you know, here's this guy. And at the time, I was a young professional. All right? This is when I was coming into my own, right? I had a job that paid more than my parents ever made in their lives. Um, I was rolling with the bourgeois class. I mean, uh-huh. my friends owned condos. I had a sob. Which was a cool car back then. I don't know what's cool these days, but a sob back in the day. Oh yeah, I had a sob, and um, you know that was sort of the that was the next step. Sort of okay, you get married, you have a lovely home, and on and on and on. And yes, the bigger problems of the world were important, but the more important thing was where you were going in your career. And, I talk about Barack meeting some of my friends and how that didn't really play out because he's this serious sort of income inequality. And my friends are like, really I just let us writing. In. You really let us yeah. in into
0: the relationship. I mean, down to the proposal and the, everything. You let us in. And you also write about some major differences between the two of you when you started out. You say, I understood it was nothing but good intentions that would lead him to say, I'm on my way or almost home. Oh, gosh. And for a while, I believed those words. I'd give the girls their nightly bath, but delay bedtime so that they could wait up to give their dad a hug. And then you describe this scene where you'd wait it up. He says, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. He doesn't come. And then you turn out the lights. I could hear them click off the way you wrote it. You could hear those those lights
1: click. You went to bed, Mm -hmm. and you were mad. I was mad. This was in the time when we had married, and he was in politics, and, you know, I had to go through the struggle that now that I had sort of... And I, we've skipped parts where I actually started to swerve and started to shape my own career. But at a point when you get married and you have kids, you know, your whole plan, once again, gets unended. Because now you're a mom. And I love being a mother. Uh, I love being at home with my girls. I was a working mother, juggling everything. I still had my careers. I was running a nonprofit organization. I went on to have, you know, some wonderfully interesting opportunities and career opportunities. But that reality of when you get married, especially you get married to somebody who has a career that swallows up everything, which is what politics is. Yeah. I talk about the challenges and of, finding of your really finding in that. my footing. Finding my voice in a very powerful, with a very powerful personality who was Barack Obama, who taught me how to swerve. But he also, his swerving just sort of, you know, I'm flailing in the wind and now I've got two kids and I'm trying to hold everything down. And he's traveling back and forth from uh, Washington or Springfield or wherever it was, given whatever office he was holding at the time. And he had this wonderful optimism about time, you know, (laughs) that (laughs) he thought there was way more of it than there really was. (laughs) And he would fill it up constantly. And I talk about how he constantly was... He's a plate spinner, I, I described it. Somebody that, you know, in the circus, you've got plates on a stick, and, you know, it's not exciting unless one's about to fall. And if there isn't any, then you put another plate up and you're spinning it. And that's my husband. That's who the box checker married. Um, and now we have two kids, and his idea of coming home, I learned, was very different from my idea of coming home. He would be optimistic and say, I'm on my way. But then I'd learn that he was in a banquet hall, you know, and hadn't like gone to the valley to get the car when he told me he was on his home, way home in 20 minutes. He and meant, I, I intend to come home. I intend home. to come home. I have a plan to come home. Yes. But it's not 20 minutes, and it's actually an hour. Um, so I had to learn how to first deal with that. And we talk about the work that we had to do as a couple, counseling we had to do to kind of work through this stuff. Um,
0: Tell us about that pivotal moment you had in counseling. I thought that that was crucial. And I know that so many people reading Becoming are going to see themselves, if not in that particular story. You say, um, after couples counseling, instead of making a case against Barack, which you went to counseling thinking, once you told the counselor. Well, because that's
1: what everybody in counseling does. You go because the counselor is going to tell the other person. Would you tell him about himself? (laughs) And she's like, would you tell her about herself? And lo and behold, counseling wasn't that at all. It was about me exploring my sense of happiness and my voice, the notion that you come to a relationship whole and that I, I couldn't look to Barack and he couldn't look to me to be everything, that we had to make our everythings on our own. Um, and what, what clicked in me was that I need support And I need some from him, but I need to figure out how to build my life in a way that works for me. Um, And going to, so what we decided to do at bedtime was that I started setting hard and fast, because the kids were little at the time. And anybody with little kids knows that bedtime is magical. You do not keep up kids up, because mothers need their children to go to sleep. And my kids were good sleepers. They went to bed at 7.30. And after that, I had my life. So 7.30 was bedtime. And it was like, if you want to see them and if you want to be here, then you have to get here. We're not waiting for you. You've got to catch up to us. And I think I I say that. that I knew that in this life that this husband I was with, this swerving dervish of a person, that I would have to ground myself and my kids firmly somewhere and have him catch up to us. But
0: what the the, the most important thing I think you said about this was that we live by the paradigms we know. Mm -hmm. And in Barack's childhood, his father disappeared, and his mother came and went. She was devoted to him, but was never really tethered to him. Mm -hmm. As far as he was concerned, there was nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And there you grew up. You all are the force. You're the square. And meanwhile, you'd been raised inside our, our, this the four of us, the tight weave of your tight own family, weave with
1: all my extended family and Sunday dinners and birthdays and the way things are. And this guy, it's like, whew, how you made it, you know? Mm-hmm. He, you know, <laughs> his mother, you know, was in Indonesia. He was raised by his grandparents. He didn't know his father. And yet, and still, and even with his context. He was a solid guy, you know, realizing that there are so many ways to live this life. So his paradigm meant that he approached family life differently than you did. Exactly. That's what you realized. And it wasn't
0: better or worse. It was different. But you also said, when it came down to it, I felt vulnerable when he was away. Meanwhile, I'd been raised inside this tight weave. And I thought that was kind of amazing to hear a modern woman, first lady, admit that.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's a real emotion, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And this notion that you, you can't feel vulnerable. I feel vulnerable all the time. Mm-hmm. And learning how to express that to my husband, that part of my frustration, you know, I, you could play the tough woman, which is what we a lot of us do. It's like, let me act like I can do it all. And I don't miss you. No, it's good. You can travel. And, you know, but when I started to tap into those parts of me that, that missed him and the sadness that came from that, you know, so that he could understand that in a way that he didn't understand distance in the same way. You know, he grew up without his mother in his life for most of his years. And he knew his mother loved him dearly. Right. Um, I always thought love was up close. This is love. Love is the dinner table. Love yeah. is, you know, love is three pints of ice cream for your report card. Love is consistency. It is presence. Um so I had to share that vulnerability that you know you also learn to love you love differently, um, and I share that in the book because I think that's an important part of my journey of becoming understanding how to become us.
0: Yes, and you know what what was so valuable to me, and I think for everyone else who reads it, is that nothing really changed. You just changed your perception. I changed my perception. You changed your perception of what was happening.
1: And I I also share this because- And that made you happier. Yeah, and young couples, I know I talk to young couples all the time, especially we, you know, we are surrounded by young people that are starting their relationships, starting marriage, starting families, and a lot of the reason why I share this is because people look to me and Barack as the ideal relationship. I know there's hashtag relationship goals out there. And it's sort of like, <laughs> whoa, people, slow down. Marriage is hard. Um, and I think it, that we have a responsibility to sort of talk about that, that the journey of having a good, strong relationship. I tell young people all the time that in a marriage, if you were lucky to be married 50 years and 20 of those years are horrible you're doing great you know (laughs) And, and and when you say that to a young couple they go well what would I want to do that for because I'm like 30 of those years are awesome awesome and what you build together can be awesome but I say that to say that Marriage isn't a cakewalk. It's hard, and there are going to be bumps and bruises, and you have to rediscover yourself because, in order for your relationship to grow, you have to constantly be growing and changing and evolving and becoming. And you hopefully, say, you have a partner. Who you even say you all
0: argue differently. He, oh God, yes, yeah, 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 yes, yes, yes.
1: We you, go into that. Um, I am like a lit match. It's like poof. And he wants to rationalize everything, you know, which is what you learn in a relationship. So you also have to learn how to argue. He has to learn to give me like a couple minutes or hour before he should even come in the room when he's <laughs> made me mad. And he has to understand that he can't convince me out of my anger. That he can't uh, he, he can't logic me into some other feeling that and my his, feelings are And him are being calm and, and rational just makes you more oh yeah irritated, oh, yeah. 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 And you know, these are things I share because I share them with my friends yes. anyway, because that's that's the other thing. That's how you talk through, that's how you get through those moments. And I want young couples as they read this to sort of see themselves and to see the the choices that they're making as they go along. And if they can see that in me and Barack, you know, maybe it will give them something to think about when they hit the bumps in their own lives. I and love marriages. that, and I
0: love how you were always rationalizing between Mary Tyler Moore who, look her up, Google. Uh, (laughs) Mary Tyler Moore, being Mary Tyler Moore and Marion, trying to balance that, which every woman is still trying to do. Yeah,
1: Mary Tyler Moore, like Oprah, was my idol from TV days because she was the only woman who wasn't trying to get married and have kids. And even though I always wanted to get married and have kids, there was something about... Her independence in that day and age where she was battling with Mr. Grant and um Yes you know, she wasn't the typical Mrs. Cleaver and you know there was she wasn't just in an apron and she wasn't even thinking about getting married. Um but then I had this other role model of a woman, which was Marion Robinson, my mother, who was the sacrificer. And she was my role model. And she didn't work until we went away to school. And there were those competing notions of who I wanted to be as a modern-day woman with choices that neither Mary Tyler Moore or Marion Robinson ever had. The choices I know that I have as a modern-day woman, the freedoms, the changing societal norms, sometimes makes it harder to choose. You know, mom. My mom would always say, "You know, I don't know how you do it, you young people. You have so many choices, and there's something about choice sometimes that is difficult. Because sometimes, if you know what you're supposed to be, and there's a limit to what you can be, you just be that. (laughs) And a lot of my parents and our grandparents' generations, that's how they, they they treated life. My mother was like, I can be a secretary or I can be a teacher." Those were basically her options growing up. Rare was the, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, those women in their generation were so rare, which is why you need to know who these women are, because for them to be where they are, given where they've come from, you know, that is an incredible oddity. But now I'm of the generation of choice, and what comes with choice is the challenge of the choice, because you can't have it all at the same time. And and that's one thing, especially the young girls, you can't have it all at the same time. It's impossible to have everything at the same time. But you can have things in moments in time uh, and you learn to embrace those moments and get ready for the next phase of when you can have more or something different.
0: You've never been a fan of the swerve. You said that. I've learned. You've learned. So what was the argument or the conversation that got you to swerve to say yes to him running for the presidency? Because every time mm-hmm. you mentioned in the book that every time someone would ask him, he'd say, well, it's a family decision, yeah, which right. was code
1: for, mm, it's like which was code, <laughs> um,
0: code for if Michelle yeah. says I can, I can't. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah, which imagine having that burden. Um, uh, but what ultimately, every time he would run for something, and the you know, I talk about that that question that would come: could he, should he, would he? That was you know that happened when he wanted to run for state senate, and then he wanted to run for Congress, and then he was running for the U.S. Senate. And I never wanted to be involved in politics. I had seen politics. I grew up in Chicago, rough and tumble politics, and I knew that Barack was a decent man, you know, smart, smart as all get out, but politics was ugly and nasty, and I didn't want I I didn't know that my husband's temperament would mesh with that. And I didn't I didn't want to see him in that environment. But then on the flip side, you see the world and the challenges that the world is facing. You know, By then, I had started working in public service. I had worked in the city. I saw the inequalities. I saw the challenges. Um, the, the longer you live and read the paper and live in the world, you know that the problems are big and complicated. And I thought, well, what person do I know who has the gifts that this man has, the gifts of decency first and foremost, of empathy second, of high intellectual ability? Yeah, this man reads and remembers everything, you know, is articulate, had worked in the community, you know. In his quiet moments, is thinking about income and, inequality. And, and really is pa- passionately, ca- feels like this is my responsibility. How do you say no to that? So I had to take off my wife hat and put on my citizen hat, as I've said, and say, how can I stand in the way if I know that this man could do good? Yeah. Because the choice for him not to do it would help me and my girls. And that felt selfish and small. And I I couldn't be the person that stopped it. Describe for us that
0: moment when you're standing with Cornelius. I call it the, the, we're not in Kansas anymore, yeah. you're standing with Cornelius and you see the motorcade for the first time.
1: Cornelius was one of my Secret Service agents at the time. We had gotten, because of death threats and all this in the campaign, I think Barack was one of the earliest presidential candidates to be assigned a Secret Service detail and eventually uh, I was assigned it because my crowds over the course of the campaign had gotten big and there was, you know, dis- discontent. And I go through that. There's a whole chapter where I talk about the bumps and the bruises that I uh, dealt with on the campaign trail. But we both had Secret Service. And this was the the day after Barack was elected. He was president-elect. It was the day that we went to visit the White House, to visit the sitting president, George and. Uh, Laura Bush. And to give you a sense of how abrupt the transition is, even though you're running for this office for two years, but that's all you're doing. And it's just really just a blur because you never think about it and you don't have time, nor are you allowed the opportunity to even imagine what you need to do if you win, because then you'd be called presumptuous. Um, So you can't really even plan your life. And then election happens. And the next day, your husband is president-elect of the United States of America. And your life blows up like that. It is over. And the first sign of that was I was standing in signature at Reagan National because I was meeting Barack in Washington. So I had flown in and he was meeting me at the airport. One of my detail leaders at the time, Cornelius, said, ma'am, your life is about to change or whatever the quote is in the book. And then the presidential motorcade pulls up. And if any of you have ever had the experience of seeing a presidential motorcade and all the people who think, oh, I want the president to come visit me. And it's like, huh. have you seen what it's going to do to your town <laughs> to have the commander in chief of the United States of America in your neighborhood? Well, this was a 20 car. I mean, and it came, it was, it was comical. I was standing there, and there was one car and another car. And then there were the police cars and two limousines that were like tanks with flags on them. And then there was a, a cat car with men with black suits with machine guns. All of them, windows down, guns out, in the back, like, I will kill you. I was like, that's in the, and then there was a brown car and a you know a clown car. And, a... <laughs> and at the end, to top it all off, there was an ambulance. So just so that you know, the president of the United States. Just as a reminder, if he gets killed or hurt, there's an ambulance with him all the time. You know, all of that was very sobering, and I was like, "This, this is this is our new life." And he said, "Yes, ma'am. Please get in the car." <laughs> <laughs> we were shot out of the cannon, um, and it, and you know that that became our life for the next eight years. Did you
0: feel a pressure being the first black family? Because you know we uh, all, uh, <laughs> uh, duh, duh. because we've all been raised with you've got to work twice as hard, gotta work twice as hard mm-hmm. to get half as far. And uh, before you came out I was saying meticulous, not a misstep. Do not- you think
1: that was an accident? Yeah,
0: I know it was no accident, but 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 yes. did you feel the pressure of that?
1: Absolutely. We felt the pressure from the minute we started to run. Uh, we talk about that and just how, first of all, we had to convince our base that a black man could win. It wasn't even winning over Iowa. We First, we had to win over black people. Because black people like Dandy, my grandparents, uh, once again, who I understand the context, they never believed this could happen. They wanted it. They wanted it for us. But their lives had told them no, never. Hillary was the safer bet for them because she was known. You know the right. the opening your hearts up to the hope that America would put down its racism for a black man. That I think that hurt too much, and it wasn't until Iowa that when Barack won Iowa that people thought, okay, maybe so. Did um, you believe in the beginning? Because you say in the oh, you, no, that you didn't no, believe no. he could win. Well, one of the reasons. The other you, reason I said yes was like, okay, we're gonna do this. He's gonna lose, and that is that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I had it all figured out. It's like, okay, when one more time, campaign? my friend. Wait, one more run. Was it Iowa that changed you too?
0: Yes. Was it after Iowa the you thought you could do The entire Iowa
1: experience, and it, it was, you know, the, the, the act of uh, letting go of my... Uh, assumptions and misperceptions about people and walking back then I was just Michelle Obama nobody knew Obama Barack Obama we were going into Iowa people you know Iowa the most Midwestern state in the Union and we went all over Iowa Mm -hmm. and we started in little living rooms where I was talking to moms and grandpas and what I did in those moments was I told my story and what I want these kids to understand was like, I completely told those stories to people and it resonated. Who I was was them. The story of my grandfather and a working class struggle and uh, growing up poor and wanting to do the best and living up to the standards of your parents and hard work and honesty being at the core of how we were raised. P- you could see people's faces turning. Every time I'd talk to people, they'd be like, I thought I, and then, oh, I know, I know her, I understand her, I get her.
0: Because you're just like me. Just like me. You're just like me.
1: If, if, you, if you tap into your true story and share that truth it resonates well, with people. Well, that's what Becoming re- does. Regardless of color and location yeah. and region, and gen- those are all that all that stuff is stuff.
0: You know what, you know how good this book is? This is how good this book
1: is. How good? This book, Tell us something. This book is so good
0: <laughs> that it reminded me of going to see Bruce Springsteen, if you all have never seen Bruce Springsteen's show. Bruce Springsteen does this amazing thing on stage where he unveils his life in such a way that he makes you think more about your own. So I'm like crying
1: about my hometown. Well, there were times, and even listening, because I was at uh, some some of the passages after listening to Bruce's yeah. storytelling, I yeah. went back and I was like, that's how, that's that's how you spin out a me. tale. That's what you know? this know. So thank you, Bruce. Yeah. It,
0: um, it, it, it makes me think about my own becoming. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody who reads it will think that. This is what was so uh, poignant to me. There was only one time during the presidency that your husband summoned you. You were at some event, and you got the message that he wanted to see you in the office. And that was
1: for? The Newtown shooting, um, when, uh, which was probably the hardest day of his presidency. And mind you to put it in context, we had been grieving losses all throughout our presidency. Um, Shootings, senseless shootings, over and over again on military bases, in theaters, in mosques, in religious. We were so exhausted um, from not the grieving with the the families and with the victims, but with the inevitable inaction that would follow.
0: How many times do you have to do it before people and it? and, And it
1: fell into a pattern that I don't know that the rest of the country understood was happening there would be a tragedy tragic shooting senseless because somebody had an automatic weapon something that you wonder what do you what do you need that for whether you hunt or whatever somebody had an automatic weapon and they went somewhere and they were unhinged and they killed a lot of people and no one could stop them until too many people were killed and there's outrage and shock. And there's nukes coverage for three days. And there's talk about doing something to ban something. And then the NRA runs ads. And then a week goes by, there's a funeral. There's mourning. There's pictures of the dead. And then a week, two weeks later, we move on. And when you, when you have to go through this, you see that pattern. And you see it becoming a pattern. The media turns it into the pattern. The politicians turn it into the pattern. And citizens who are not harmed turn it into a pattern. And we thought Newtown was going to be different, not to mention all the shootings that were going on in neighborhoods, in my neighborhood, all over the place, kids being killed every day by assault weapons that don't even get reported. Right? Kids you assume were just gangbangers and just nobodies. And we thought, well, maybe these suburban white kids, quite frankly, babies shot in their classroom at school would be different. And that's when Barack called me in, because it had just happened. And he had seen the pictures? He had seen. Well, when you're the president of the United States, you see everything. And you know everything. And you know it in grave detail. Um, So my question is, when the weight of the world is on his shoulders.
0: And you're the shoulders that he's leaning on. How did you carry that?
1: How do you carry that? Trying to be the calm in his swerve. Mm -hmm. You know, doing what I was taught was that, you know, when the leaves are blowing and the wind is rough, having a being a steady trunk in his life and creating that order that he didn't have that brings calm, you know, family dinners. One of the things I brought into the White House was that strict code of, you got to catch up with us, dude. This is when we're having dinner. Yes, you were president, but you can bring your butt from the Oval Office and sit down (laughs) and talk to your children, because children bring solace. And being able to turn your sights off of the issues of the day and focus on, you know, Saving the Tigers, that was one of Malia's primary uh, goals. She she advocated throughout his presidency to make sure that the Tigers were saved. Um, hearing about what happened with what school friend, you know, falling into other people's lives, immersing yourself into the reality and the beauty of your children and your family. And those are the kind of things that I tried to provide. to keep you stable. Plus, on the East Wing side, our motto was... <laughs> we have to do everything excellently. If we do it, because the First Lady doesn't have to do anything, uh, we were <laughs> we, we were clear that what we were going to do was going to have impact, and it was going to be positive. Because they, the West Wing had enough going on. So we wanted to be the happy side of the, of the house. Um, And we were, literally, we were the happy side. You'd have national security advisors coming over to brief me about something. They'd fall into my office that was actually beautifully decorated, lots of flowers and apples, and we were always laughing. And they'd sit down for a briefing and they wouldn't want to leave. And it's like, we're done, gentlemen. It's like, we don't want to go back. We don't want to go back to the West Wing. It's like, you gotta go. I gotta gotta get to this section. So I tried to be calm for my husband and not add to his stress.
0: That's how you were the shoulder. Yeah. That's what I tried to do. There's a section in the book that's obviously going to be, ta- the lots, lots of the book is going to be talked about, a lot of your personal revelations, but this one I can just see them on uh, certain news channels. We're going to have a field day with this. You write about Donald Trump stoking the false notion that your husband was not born in this country. On page 353 you say, Donald Trump, with his loud and reckless innuendos, was putting my family's safety at risk, and for this... I'd never forgive him. Why was it important for you to say that at this time?
1: Because I don't think he knew what he was doing, that for him it was a game. Um, And for the commander-in-chief, which he now is, the threats and security risks that you face as the commander-in-chief, not even within your home country but around the world, are real. And your children are at risk. Um, And the difference, when when you're now in that position, you understand that while, while you live in a bubble, your children have to live outside of the bubble. And in order for my children to have a normal life, even though they had security, they were in the world in a way that we weren't. And so to think that some crazed person who was ginned up to think that somehow my husband was a threat to the country's security and to know that we have shootings anyway, and to know that my children every day had to go to a school that was guarded but not secure, that they had to go to soccer games, and parties, and travel, and go to college, that this person would not take into account that this is not a game is something that I want the country to understand. You know, I I want the country to take this in, in a way that I, I didn't say out loud, but I'm saying it now. It was reckless, and it put my family in danger, and it wasn't true. And he knew it wasn't true. And we have to stop for a moment. People of all persuasions of any political party, we have to wonder, what are we doing? So yes, I put that in the book intentionally. And I hope it is discussed. And I hope that we're very careful as we disagree with each other. Because again, we can disagree. We can disagree with the president of the United States without putting him in harm's way. Yeah. And anytime someone makes threats like that or accusations that can unhinge people, you're putting him and in jeopardy. And families. We had a bullet shot into the uh, yellow oval during our tenure there, a high-powered weapon. Uh, Several streets down by then, security hadn't shut the streets down facing the Truman Balcony that far, because up until then, people didn't have access to high-powered machine guns. So the distance of closure that they had, the level of patrol, didn't go far back enough. Well, there was a lunatic that came and parked right in front, way down, I can't remember which street, on Constitution, shot from Constitution, The bullet hole hit the upper left corner. I see it to this day. (laughs) The window of the Truman Balcony where my family sat. It was really the only place we could get outdoor space. And fortunately, nobody was out there at the time. No one was hurt, thankfully. The the shooter was caught. Um, But I lived with that reality. Maybe got reported a little bit. I don't even know if people remember. But it took months because to replace that glass, because it's bomb-proof glass. It took months to replace it. And I had to look at that bullet hole as a reminder of what we were living with every day. Now, the current president didn't see that hole. He didn't live through it. He was an outside agitator playing a game. And we cannot play games like that in this country, in this time where we are not going to do anything about high-powered assault weapons We can't play those games with each other, not just with the President of the United States, but we can't play those games with one another, because bad things happen when people are afraid and when they're made to be afraid. So yeah, I wanted to talk about that.
0: You end the book saying, talk about also what will last. You, uh, you are mulling over this question of what will last. And one of the things that has lasted with you, you say, is the sense of optimism. I continue to keep myself connected to a force that's larger and more potent than any other election or leader or news story, and that's optimism for me. This is a form of faith and an antidote to fear, you say. So I wanted to ask you, do you feel that same sense of optimism for our country? who we are as a nation
1: are becoming, do you feel that? Yes. And we have to feel that optimism for these kids. We're setting the table for them. And we we can't hand them crap. We have to hand them hope. Uh, Progress isn't made through fear. We're experiencing that right now. And fear is false. Fear is the coward's way of leadership. Um, But all these kids, kids are, are born into this world with a sense of hope and optimism, no matter where they're from, how tough their stories are. They think they can be anything, because we tell them that. So now we have a responsibility to be optimistic and to operate in the world in that way. So yes. You feel optimistic for our country. We have to be.
0: Right. Michelle Obama, becoming, coming. Be coming, Michelle Obama. Great. Right. Ah, yes. Good job, you.
1: Ah. Good job. Good job.